we have a very special guest speaker today. And speaking of, of kids' ministry, I met her, or my first recollection of meeting her was about 17 years ago at a camp with about 500 kids. And she was the rec leader of the entire camp, uh, teaching the kids songs and playing games. And she really, she taught me a song that it, it really changed my life. And it, it goes like this. I think I'm going to throw up. I think I'm going to throw up. I think I'm going to throw up my hands and praise the Lord. Now, <laughs> kids camp, all right? And he had the emotion, think I'm going to throw up. Uh, that was not during the altar time, all right? That was just during the, the fun and games times. I don't, that was 17 years ago. Uh, a lot has changed, and, and um, Amy began in kids ministry and then felt called to serve kids in other nations and spent some time in Africa and now is a missionary and pastor in Vietnam in Ho Chi Minh City, which uh, I looked it up briefly. Did you know in the metro area of Ho Chi Minh City, there's 21 million people? That's, that's four times all the people in Colorado together, all in one place, if you want to wrap your mind about that. But God has called her there, and God is, is using her. And so, Amy, would you come and, and share with us this morning? Can we welcome her? Thank you, Pastor. Good morning. You know, he conveniently left out the motions to that song. I believe it was, I think I'm going to throw up, and they would do that over and over. And yeah, good times, good times. Um, but no, it is an honor to be here. I had a great time last night. Um, sorry, let me get this fixed. Spending time with uh, your pastor and his wife and him telling me a little bit about the story of the Hills Church and what a great story and what a wonderful church to be a part of. And it is an honor to be here. Uh, we've come a long way since those kids camp days. Hopefully we are not just older, but wiser as well. Um, if you don't mind, today I'm going to share something and it is, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. It's going to be the raw, hard truth. Um, and I would just like us to pray one more time before we go into that, if that's okay with you. If we could just bow our heads. Father, you are so good. And you are so patient. And you are so kind. And so this morning, I ask that you would speak through me, that it would be your words, not my words. I ask that every heart that is sitting here this morning that is broken would hear from you, would experience, and know your love this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to immediately begin this morning with two scripture verses. Philippians 3, verses 10 to 11, I'm going to read to you from the New English Translation. My aim is to know him, to experience the power of his resurrection, to share in his sufferings, and to be like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. And then John 12, 24 to 25 in the message version says this. This is Jesus speaking. Listen carefully. Unless a grain of wheat is buried in the ground, dead to the world, it is never more than a grain of wheat. But if it is buried, it sprouts and reproduces itself many times over. In the same way, anyone who holds on to life just as it is destroys that life. But if you let it go, reckless in your love, you will have it forever, real and eternal. 
As Pastor said, I've spent many years working in Africa. I was living in the country of Senegal. Most people, maybe you haven't heard of that, maybe you have, but it's a tiny country uh, in the very far western part of the country of the of the continent of Africa. I was living in the northern part of the country. I was working among unreached people groups, working among Muslims. We were building schools and planting churches in an area where there were literally no known believers in that country. It was exciting stuff. I was living my dream. You have to understand and know that my passion, my calling, my dream was Africa. And and I was there and I was living it. I was one of those lucky people who was living my dream. But on May 19th, 2014, everything changed for me. It still shakes me to my core to realize how literally in a matter of hours, literally overnight, everything in your life can change. I'll never forget that Sunday because it was such a normal day, May 18th. I woke up that morning and went to church. We had a small group of believers that gathered, about 15 of us. After church, I went to lunch with some friends. I went home. I took a nap. And in that afternoon, I walked around a small island-type area where I lived and visited with my neighbors. And I came back home, and I remember posting a picture on Facebook of some little girls jump roping. And I wrote, just another Sunday evening on the island. And I had no idea that when I went to bed that night, everything would be different the next morning. About 2.30 in the morning, two men broke into my home. They immediately came into my bedroom. They blindfolded me. They put a gag in my mouth and a knife to my throat and proceeded to rape and torture me for two hours. They told me they were going to kill me. They told me they were going to kidnap me and take me to Mauritania as one of their wives. But ultimately, when they were done, they left me alive. And and once I managed, once I knew they were gone and I managed to free myself, Uh, I went out, um, fortunately they did not steal my car, and I was able to drive half a mile down the road to my colleague's house, and I just pounded on their door until finally they woke up and came to help me, and the hours and the days and the weeks and the months and the years following that have been some of the most difficult, most painful of my life. We had to deal with the police there, and, and I, I would hope it's a little different than dealing with the police here because there were accusations of somehow it being my fault. What Macy shared earlier is very true. We victim blame so often. I could go on and on and even tell you in the church of people who somehow blamed me for what happened. But the police and, and the doctors, and it took time to finally get a doctor who was kind and who would help us. And within 48 hours, I was flown back to the U.S., and I cannot put into words to you how hopeless it was, how lost I was. And I remember just a few weeks after the attack, I went to this large meeting where there were a lot of pastors and a lot of missionaries who came together every year. And I know people thought, and, and, and some encouraged me, don't go, Amy, it's too soon. It's too soon. Don't go. Don't be around that many people. It's not good. And I know their, their concern was that somehow someone would say something that would increase my pain. But I said, no, I need my people. I have to do this. I can't do this alone. This pain is too great. This is too deep. I cannot walk this alone. And I would say to each one of you this morning, you have a gift in the, with the body of Christ, with the church, the Heals Church here, the church in general. We were created to need one another, to help one another, to bear one another's burdens. And I knew this was too great. 
great. I could not do this alone. And I went to this meeting, and, and, and one of Matthew's aunts and, and, and Nona's sister, she was like my bodyguard. She stayed with me that entire week in that meeting, everywhere I went. And I remember walking into one of the rooms for a different meeting, and someone I didn't know well, they came up to me. And, and it was one of those people who gets right in your face. You know what I'm talking about. And they get, she got right in my face. And you got to understand, I'm still in shock. It's only been two weeks. And she gets right in my face and she starts saying, Amy, Africa needs you. Amy, don't give up on Africa. Don't give up on Africa, Amy. Africa needs you. And as she was saying this, I literally felt it bubbling up inside of me. And then all of a sudden, I just blurted out and I said, but evil is winning. Nothing we do counts. Nothing we do matters because evil is winning. And my friend graciously pulled me out of that conversation. And I went home that night and I sat down. And I thought about what I said, how it felt like evil was winning. And I wrote probably one of the most hopeless emails I've ever written in my life. And I sent it out to all of my friends and all of my supporters. And it said this, it feels like evil is winning. If I can be honest with you all, that is what I'm feeling these days. Evil is winning. Sunday night, Pastor Jim said this in his sermon. The greatest power in the world today is not sin, but the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I know this is true, but it feels like evil is winning. I've come face to face with evil, and it feels like evil is winning. I've spent almost seven years in Senegal and have very little to show for that time. I have talked about, prayed about, and cried many tears for the Matam Project. And part of me thinks... Yes, we will plant a church, but really, will it make a difference? It feels like evil is winning. This trauma has shaken up our entire team in Senegal. We are all trying to find our way through this. It feels like evil is winning. I need you. I need your prayers because it feels like evil is winning. In response to that email, a friend wrote these words to me. I believe you've now fallen to the ground, Amy. There's nothing left of you to give. That's okay. Stay there. Allow the rains to pour over you. Bathe in worship. Bathe in who God is. Forget about who you are, who you were, who you were hoping to be. Let God decide what he wants to bring out of your fallen seed. Let him be the one who turns death to life. Wait for the resurrection. Don't try and force it. And the following year for me was a year of waiting for that resurrection. Sorry. A year of just waiting on the ground because I literally couldn't do anything. I was so lost. And the organization I was serving with, uh, they had a place up in Seattle, Washington for counseling. And someone had connected me to this place. And I went up there. And, and I thought I was going up there just to spend a couple of months in counseling. But I ended up spending eight months in counseling. Every day going up there for a couple of hours. I don't stand before you this morning pretending I'm strong, pretending I'm someone great and victorious, because I'm not. If I can tell you anything I learned through all of this, it is weakness and dependence. Because his word says, his strength is made perfect in our weakness. And I learned dependence on God during that season. 
And I spent that time up there doing nothing. I was so hopeless and so lost. And I kept a journal during that time there. And in order to adequately show you what that journey from death to life looked like for me, I wanted to read to you just a few excerpts of my journey. On May 25th, exactly one week after the attack, I wrote these words. I don't know how I will make it through the days ahead. And I wrote this scripture verse, Isaiah 42.3. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. August 6th. My heart hurts so deeply right now. My life is over. Any ministry, any calling on my life is over. And I am just trash on the side of the road. You got to understand this morning, the fact that I am standing up here talking to you is a miracle. Because at any point during that season, anytime I tried to imagine myself standing before people like this again, all I could picture was me standing there and crying. But God's redemption is an incredible thing. August 28th, my anger towards you runs deep, God. I would challenge you this morning by saying, you can be angry with God. It's okay to be angry with God. I was in another country doing what I believe God called me to do, and he allowed this to happen. Of course I was angry with God, but I would give you this one challenge in your anger today. In your anger, run to God, not from God. He has broad shoulders. He can handle your anger. He can handle your grief. He can handle your disappointment. All you have to do is look in the word of God and you see people after people who were angry with God, who were disappointed with God, who were hurt. He can handle it. In your anger, run to him, not from him. October 1st. I don't know how to walk this road. December 1st. On this day, I wrote two scripture verses. And honestly, I don't know how I saw these verses. I, I assume someone posted them on Facebook because it's from the book of Lamentations. And let's be honest, who reads the book of Lamentations? Especially when you're walking through grief, who wants to read a book about lament? But this scripture verse, when I saw this verse, it so resonated in my spirit. Lamentations 3.17. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say, my endurance has perished. So is my hope from the Lord. That's what I felt. My soul is bereft of peace. That's where I was. It's what I felt. But there are times in life when we must choose truth over what we feel. Our feelings will betray us. And even though that's what I felt that day, I also wrote this verse, just a few verses down. Chapter 3, verses 21 to 23 says this. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Now, I didn't feel that part that said, great is your faithfulness. I felt the part that said, my soul is bereft of peace. But I challenge you, you must decide today and now to choose truth over what you feel. December 3rd. I have asked and asked, I have waited and waited, and still you are silent, God. 
If this is your plan to completely abandon me, then why didn't you just let them kill me that night? I should explain to you exactly where I was and why I wrote those words. I was up in Seattle, and, and I'm from Texas, and, and I had gone back to Texas for, for Thanksgiving. And what you have to understand is going back to Texas, being with family, being with friends was actually extremely difficult for me. Because in going back, I felt like everyone was looking at me saying, Amy, figure it out. Amy, get it together. Amy, move on. Now, in reality, looking back, I don't think anyone was looking at me like that. But that's how I felt people were looking at me. So when I was in Texas, I felt like I had to put on this strong face. I had to put on this facade. And it was exhausting. And literally, when I was flying back to Washington, as I grew closer to Seattle in the air, I could literally feel the grief settling back down. I could literally feel the despair settling back on me. And I don't mean it so much as a negative thing, because it was me being able to be authentic where I was really at. And I was exhausted. And I landed and I had a voicemail from my counselor saying she was very sick and she would not be able to meet that week. And I just thought, that's it, God. That's it. And so I decided I was going to find a cabin out in the middle of nowhere, out in the woods. I wasn't going to tell anyone where I was going. And I was going to go out there and I was going to have it out with God because this was it. I couldn't do this anymore. Now, I made a lot of poor decisions in that, so I don't encourage that. But I did exactly that. I found a cabin. I told no one where I was going, just that I was going. I turned off my phone. I turned off my computer. And for three days, all I did was eat, sleep, yell at God, sleep, yell at God. And for three days, God seemed to remain silent. And toward the end of that three days, I was up one morning, and I was washing the dishes that I had used. And as I was washing the dishes, I, I, I was washing a butcher knife I had used the night before. And I stopped, and I looked at that knife, and I looked at my wrist, and I just thought, I could end it all right now. I could just be done. And then after a moment, I just, I snapped out of it, and I quickly grabbed my bags, and I was still in my pajamas, and I hopped in the car, and I drove three hours to a friend's house that I knew, and I said, I cannot be alone right now. And what had happened for me in that moment was it felt like God had abandoned me. It felt like he had abandoned me, and if that were true, there really was no hope. But again, it was one of those moments where we have to choose the truth of God's word over what we feel. Because I believe it was the Holy Spirit that rose up in me and said, it can't be true. It's just not true. It cannot be true. Because his word says he will never leave us. He will never forsake us. And I had to choose that truth over what I was feeling in that moment. December 10th. Jesus, help me breathe. Just help me breathe. During this entire time, when I'm writing all of these things that I was writing over those months, there was a prayer I would pray every day. I would stick both of my fists out in front of me, tightly closed, and I would say, God, I let go of everything. I give you everything. And as I prayed that prayer, I would slowly open my fist, and tears would be coming down my face. Because in spite of everything, I knew, I knew in that prayer what one thing God was asking me to let go of. And he was asking me to let go of Africa. And you have to understand, that was my passion, my dream. And he was asking me to let go of it. And during this same time as this is happening, I have a friend, Dolan Marie Watson, who were older mentors of mine, who were working in Vietnam. 
And guys, I don't like Asia. I don't like Asian food. I really don't. And, and, and they were inviting me. They said, Amy, just come to Vietnam. Amy, just come be with us. Amy, just come spend a couple of days with us. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to be anybody. Just come. And I was resisting because I don't want to. You know, people pray, God, don't send me to Africa. I had literally thanked God in my past for not sending me to Asia. I mean, it's a great place, you guys. If there are any Asians in the room, I just don't like your food. Um, and so I finally responded just to get them to leave me alone. I said, look, if leadership approves, I will make this trip. I didn't think leadership would approve. But quickly when I asked, they thought, oh, yes, this is a great idea. And so I was going to Vietnam, and I remember being at the airport, getting ready to board in LAX to make the trip to Vietnam. And I remember being on a phone with a friend of mine from Texas, and they said, Amy, are you excited? Are you excited you're going to Vietnam? And I said, no. No, I'm not excited. I said, I don't want to do this. I don't want to go because I know exactly what God's going to do. And I don't want him to do it. And I said, I know if he does it, he will change my heart. But I don't even want him to change my heart. I want it to be Africa. I don't want it to be Asia. I'm just a little bit stubborn at times. And I went to Vietnam. And I spent two weeks there. And my friends were gracious because the first few days I was angry. I was angry that I was there. And I spent a couple of days with them, and they just loved me. And, and I began, I, I would go out with him to an orphanage that he was involved with. And I would just love these kids. And, and I don't know, you guys, I, I don't know if it's somehow the brokenness in them connected with the brokenness in me. I don't know if it's that somehow, sometimes, in our giving, God brings our healing but somehow during that time, for the first time, and this was nine months after the attack, for the first time, I felt life being stirred up in me. And I wrote in my journal, I am finally coming back to life. And I, I was out there one day, and, and, and I was sitting with Joel in his living room. And I said to Joel, I said, Joel, God hung me out to dry, and now he remains silent. What am I supposed to do with that? I was still very much on my journey. And he didn't say much. And the next day, we'd been out at the orphanage, and we were sitting down again in his living room. And he said, you know, Amy, the other day you said God was silent. And he said, you know, may maybe he is. And, and he shared this story with me. I had seen him at the orphanage that day, and he was holding this little girl in his arms who was so sick, probably no bigger than Bennett. And he was just holding her, and he was just rocking her and patting her on the back. And I saw him walk over to a sink and wet a cloth and put it on her neck, and he just rocked her some more. And then he saw me watching him, and he just mouthed and said, she's so sick. And so that evening as we're sitting and we're talking, he said, you know, you said God was silent, and maybe he is. But he said, in the same way I was with that little girl today, so he said, I think you know, you feel him, you know he's there. He said, in the same way I was with that little girl, I believe your heavenly father is holding you right now. He said, I didn't say a word to that little girl. She didn't need me to say anything to her. I was just holding her. And your heavenly father is just holding you right now. And that image so stayed with me that my heavenly father was present and he was holding me. After that trip, I, I made the decision, and I told Joel, I said, look, I'll come back to Vietnam. I'll spend a year, but then I'm going back to Africa. I, like I said, guys, stubborn. I mean, you can imagine. 
you can imagine being my parents. <laughs> yeah, you know, um, the Enneagram thing. I, I, I'm an Enneagram 8, and I, if you know anything about that, it can be challenging. There's hope for Bennett, you guys. There's hope, okay? <laughs> but I went back to Vietnam, and I spent a year there working, determined that I was still going back to Africa. And halfway through that year, I remember it was around Christmas time, I knew I couldn't wrestle with God anymore. Here's the deal. I'm stubborn, but I will always be obedient. I may resist. I may fight the Lord. I may try with everything in me to convince him otherwise, but I will always be obedient. And I knew the Lord was saying, Vietnam is where you're supposed to be. And I made the official decision, and I wept for three days, you guys. And it took me three months to finally write my leadership and tell them that I was no longer returning to Africa, but coming to Vietnam. And I remember toward the end of that year, I had to come back to the U.S. to make connections, to raise funds, to go full-time to Vietnam. And I remember my last day at the orphanage, walking by the three- and four-year-old classroom, and one of my favorite little girls, Nam, she was sitting on the floor, and she was sobbing. And what was happening in the classroom was they each had a pile of toys around them. And so I walked in, and I picked up Nam, and I just held her. And I just wiped the tears from her face until she calmed down. And I sat her back down, and she continued to play. Now, what had happened? You know, they had these toys, each one around them. And you got to understand, these kids are orphans. They have nothing. They own nothing. Nothing belongs to them. But what had happened was one little boy, one boy and guys, I, I have to say it's always a boy. One little boy took one little toy from her pile, and she was sobbing. And after I sat her back down, and she had calmed down and continued to play, I looked at her. And I just thought, she overreacted, but I'm not angry with her. I love her. And in that moment, the Holy Spirit spoke to me because I had been saying, God, I don't understand. God, I speak French. I don't speak Vietnamese. God, I don't eat Asian food. Why are you sending me to Vietnam? And I felt him speak to me. Amy, I understand that you don't understand. And I am not angry, but I am patient and I am loving and I am kind. And I would say to every one of you sitting here this morning, there are things we don't understand. There are questions we have. But with all the questions and anger and frustration and disappointment you throw at God, I promise you, your Heavenly Father, He is not angry with you. He understands that you don't understand. And He is patient. And He is loving. And He is kind. I came back to the U.S., and it had been two years since the attack, and I was ready to make a trip back to Senegal. And so I made this trip, and I went back to Senegal. And I had two things I wanted on this trip, you guys. Number one, I wanted to face my attackers. They had never been caught, but I had hoped to find them. I wanted them to have to look me in the eye because they never had to look me in the eye that night. And then two, I wanted to be back inside my home, back inside my bedroom where it happened. I wasn't trying to relive anything. I just wanted to be back in that room. And I made this trip, and some friends went with me on this trip. And as we were there, uh, we, we drove out about four hours to where, to where I was living outside of the capital city. And, and I remember uh, finding out that, that the attackers... Um, they assumed it was a part of a gang. The police, it's kind of a thing where they think they know who it was, but they couldn't, they can't do anything about it. And, and I remember uh, we had gone to visit some of my neighbors, and I left my friends who had traveled with me, and I thought, I have about 10 minutes before they realize I'm gone. 
And I decided I was going to go and I was going to find these guys. I literally walked around and everybody on the island knew me and everybody on the island knew what happened. And I walked around and I literally, I would see someone and I, would, I wouldn't even greet them. I just said, who was it and where are they? And I came up to a couple of guys and I said that and they just kind of stepped back and said, if we knew, we would do something about it. And then someone made the mistake of telling me where the gang leader lived. And so I walked around to his house, and I stood outside his house, and I thought, I'm going to walk right in that house, and I don't care who I run into. I'm going to say, who was it? Where are they? And then I thought, you know, then wisdom came over me. And I thought, that might not be good. I could get stuck in the house, and that would be a problem. So I thought, I'm going to stand outside the door, and if anybody walks out, I'm going to confront them. And I waited there for a couple of minutes, and and no one came out, and I walked back to my friends, and I was disappointed. But I kind of thought there was a real possibility I wouldn't find the guys. And then through such circumstances I won't go into and explain, I couldn't get back into my house, and I was devastated. And I walked around to the side where my bedroom window was. If you'll put that picture up for me. I walked around. This is, this is that window. And I stood outside that window, and I laid my head down on the windowsill, and I put my hand up on the window, because I just wanted to get as close as I could, and I just started sobbing. And I said, God, I have to leave it here. I don't know how to do this, God, but I have to leave it here. Now understand when I was saying I have to leave it here, it doesn't mean that I don't still have challenge. It doesn't mean that I don't still have hard times. But it meant that it could no longer be this dark cloud that overshadowed me everywhere I went. And I stood there and I sobbed and I sobbed. And I just said, God, I have to leave it here. I don't know how to do this, God. I have to leave it here. And after a few minutes, some of my friends joined me. And prayed with me. And we walked away and we got into the car and drove four hours to the Capitol. And as we were in the car, I began to sob. Hyperventilating type sobbing. And I just said to God, God, you're just being mean. God, I just wanted one thing. And it wasn't even that. I wanted one thing, God, and you couldn't even get me inside that house. You're just being mean, God. And I felt the Holy Spirit in his gentle voice say, Amy, I understand that you don't understand. And I am not angry, but I am patient. And I am loving. And I am kind. And then I came back to the U.S. In some miraculous way, God helped me to leave it there. I cannot explain it. I don't know how it happened, but he helped me to leave it there. Do I still wonder why I couldn't get into that house. Of course I do. But it's not this dark shadow that overpowers me, that overshadows me. If anything, my story empowers me now. I would tell you this. If someone you know is walking through grief, or if you're walking through grief and someone has thrown this story, this verse at you. Because I will tell you this, throwing scripture verses at people who are in the depths of despair, especially for someone who knows the scripture, it did nothing but make me angry. And one verse that people threw at me often was, um, I, I'm trying to, I've just lost how it says, um, he works everything together. Works all things together for the good of those who love him. I hated hearing that verse. I hated hearing that verse. Because what I heard when someone said was, God did this to you on purpose. Mm. 
so he could bring something good. He did this to you on purpose, and I will tell you this, I do not believe that for a moment. Some of you in here may disagree with me, but I do not believe this was part of God's plan. I do not believe everything happens for a reason. I believe we live in a world that is fallen and full of sin, and, and, and bad things happen to good people. It just does. But here's what I've come to believe about that scripture verse. What happened was bad, and it will always be a bad thing. It will never be a good thing, never. But what God does, if we release it to him, if we allow him to, he will take this bad, ugly thing, and he will position it to be something good in our lives. He will not make it good, but he will position it to be something good in our lives today. I went back to Vietnam, and long story short, it was purely God's sovereignty that he had me there, and now I'm pastoring a church. Guys, I never, I never thought I'd be doing this, and I love it, and God has been good. And if I look back over everything, you know what my one regret is? I wish I had trusted God more. Now, God's not angry at me at all. I don't want to mislead you with that, but I look back and I think, oh, I wished I just trusted him because I only created more anxiety for myself with my lack of trust. I want to read these words to you. First, I want to say in closing, no matter how dark it gets, no matter how dark it gets, evil is not winning. In the kingdom of God for every death, there is and there will be a resurrection. If you're sitting here this morning and you are hurting and you are in the depths of despair, and maybe no one knows about it, I encourage you first, reach out to someone. The enemy's number one tactic is isolation. Do not isolate yourself. But if that's you this morning, I want to read these words over you, these words that my friend wrote to me. I believe you've now fallen to the ground. There's nothing left of you to give. That's okay. Stay there. Allow the rains to pour over you. Bathe in worship. Bathe in who God is. Forget about who you are, who you were, who you were hoping to be. Let God decide what he wants to bring out of your fallen seed. Let him be the one who turns death to life. Wait for the resurrection. Don't try and force it. Bow your heads with me. Father, you are so good. Even in our questions, even in our anger, even in our despair, you are good. You are good. Thank you, God, that you are patient and that you are kind. Oh, Jesus, bring hope and healing today. May every heart feel your love in this moment. If anyone's feeling like they're alone today, oh, in this moment, reveal yourself to them. That in the same way Joel was with that little girl, that you are right there with them, and you are holding them, and you are comforting them, and you are guiding them. Father, help us to trust. Help us to trust you, Jesus.